0: Lord's help, uh, we're going to continue our uh, series on anxiety that uh, we'll be studying for the next several weeks under this title, Calm, Putting Your Anxiety to Rest. Now, just what is anxiety? We get a lot of uh, definitions, uh, a lot of synonyms uh, thrown out, I'm sure, tonight, but I would answer that um question by using this illustration Uh, let's say that you're you're out on your daily walk okay whether you take one or not just play like you do okay you're out on your daily walk strolling through the neighborhood anxiety is not the sight of an angry dog it is the suspicion of one or two or ten I'm talking like behind every tree, around every corner. I mean, in your mind, it's just a matter of time until some angry, vicious, man eating dog comes towards you. Its, its teeth are, are bearing down on you. And it's going to tear you apart, and it's going to tear your family apart, and your friends apart, and your bank account apart, and your pets apart. It's going to tear everything apart. And so you spend your entire walk on edge, uptight, and tense because of something that you are convinced might happen sometime. with me? And because of that, you don't sleep, you don't laugh very much, you don't really enjoy life, you don't smile hardly at all. All you can think of and all you can think about is what if. As a matter of fact, anxiety (coughs) is a meteor shower of what ifs. What if I don't make the sale? What if there's no Christmas bonus this year? What if I can't afford braces for the kids? What if my kids have crooked teeth? What if crooked teeth keep them from having friends? Or a career? Or a spouse? What if they end up homeless and hungry? Holding a cardboard sign that reads, My parents couldn't afford braces for me. Anxiety is a life in a minor key with major consequences. Let me say that again. Anxiety is life in a minor key with major concerns. The word anxious is is pretty much self-explanatory. It pretty much divines itself. It's a hybrid of angst and shush. Anxious. Angst is a sense of unease shush is the sound i make part way through a racquetball match when my heart starts beating real fast and i'm out of breath i can be heard inhaling and exhaling and it sounds a lot like the second syllable of anxious which makes me wonder if anxious people aren't just that people who are out of breath because of the angst of life. Anxiety takes our breath for sure, if only that were all that it took. It also takes our sleep. It takes our energy. It takes our well-being. Bottom line, it's not good English, but it's the truth anxiety ain't fun it's just not paul knew that and that's why he addressed it in our text philippians chapter 4 if you're there look with me in verse 4 rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice let your moderation be known unto all men the lord is at hand be careful for nothing for in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think On these things. Now, I understand that we didn't read the word anxious in any of those verses, but it's exactly what Paul was referring to when he used the word careful. There in verse 6, he said, Be careful for nothing. That word literally means to be anxious about, it means to be worrisome, it means to be fretful. And let me just point this out. I may have pointed out a couple of weeks ago uh, in the message on Sunday morning. But Paul used the present active tense here, which implies an ongoing state. In other words, do not go on being anxious, is what Paul is telling us in, in, in verse 6. Do not go on with this in this continual, perpetual state of. of Anxiousness. Again, I, I said this a, a couple of weeks ago, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. You understand what I'm saying there? I, just through the course of everyday life, there are going to be moments in which we're anxious. That's unavoidable in the, in the world that we live in. It happens. Life happens. Anxiety comes. It's unavoidable. But listen to me tonight, church. We don't have to live there. We do not, as a matter of fact, it is not God's will that we exist in a continual, perpetual state of worry and anxiety. I'll say more about verse 6 when we come to it, but for now, let's focus our thoughts on verse 4, where Paul writes this, Rejoice! In the Lord, always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to cover this one verse, but as we do, starting tonight, I'm going to encourage you to rejoice always in two things. Number one, in the sovereignty of the Lord. And secondly, in the mercy of the Lord. Those two things, God's sovereignty and God's mercy mercy a few years ago brother tyler and brother andrew when he was here and myself were invited to a conference on the uh, pine ridge indian reservation uh, and it was being hosted by, by brother ken trivet uh, you remember brother trivet he's been here a, a couple of times during our missions conference the services were being held outside under a under a tent And one night as we were preparing for the services to start, a a storm blew in, And as they can out there on the plains. I mean, it just, boom, it just came on. And it was not a little storm by any means. It was blowing so hard that the, the trees were bending over. And that tent was swaying this way and that way, but it never fell down. And the reason that it never fell down was because it was held up by a a number of poles. Now, I'm not talking about those slender, retractable, aluminum ones that come with a camping tent that you buy at Walmart. I'm talking about cast iron poles that were as thick as your forearm. And, And though the winds blew and the rains pounded, Amazingly enough, that tent never gave way. And I use that illustration tonight because it's a good picture of what life throws at us sometimes. Too bad, though, the storms of life are are not limited to just wind and rain. Our storms consist of what one writer called the big D's of life. Difficulties, divorce, disease, and death. I think that pretty much covers the storms of life that all of us from time to time have to endure. It's one thing to find shelter from wind and from rain, which we did. We went inside. We held the services inside that night. But where do we find shelter that is suitable for the storms that I just shared with you? Where do we find shelter from the storm of death, from the storm of disease, from the storm of divorce, from the storm of difficulty? Well, Paul knew the answer to that. And he shares it with us in our text. Now, I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. I told you a little bit about the Mamertine prison that Paul would have been held in. But imagine, if you will, picture, if you will, a 60-year-old Paul as he gazes out the window of a Roman prison. See how stooped and scarred he is. That's not just from the, the miles that he's traveled, but it's from the beatings that he's taken as well. We know from his own record that on three different occasions, he was beaten with 39 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. On at least one occasion, he was stoned and left for dead. And that's not to mention the other times that he was imprisoned or the times he was deserted by his friends and his co-laborers or the time that we'll study in the book of Acts when he suffered shipwreck or, or the times that he had to deal with starvation. And let's not forget on top of all of that, as if that were not enough, he had to carry the weight of the burden of all of the new churches That he had planted yet you read his words throughout the book of Philippians and you would think that it just arrived at some hotel on some Jamaican Island somewhere the theme of the book of Philippians is what anybody know rejoice Rejoice. joy that's the theme of the book of Philippians it's joy and as you read its four chapters And it's 104 verses. You'll not read one, not one word of fear, not one word of complaint. Paul never shakes his his angry fist at God. Instead, as I preached a couple of weeks ago, he lifts his thanks to Him. And he calls his readers to do the same. Maybe that's why, and and I found this to be interesting, I didn't know this, but maybe that's why the Bible is Kendall's most highlighted book. And according to some, why Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is the most highlighted passage in the Bible. Paul's prescription for anxiety begins with a call. To rejoice in verse 4. Look at it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You you begin to break that down. And it's it's as if Paul used every tool in his grammatical toolbox to try and get our attention. First of all, he employed a present imperative tense so his readers would hear him say continually... Habitually rejoice. That's the message that he's trying to get across here. Continually rejoice. Make it a a habitual part of your life to rejoice and give thanks. And as if the the verb tense wasn't enough, he removed the expiration date. He said rejoice in the Lord how long? Always. Always. There's no end to that. There's no time limit. Okay, I did it, Paul. Now what? No, just keep doing it. And keep doing it. And keep doing it, and keep doing it. And if perchance the verb tense and always were inadequate, he repeated the command. And again, I say, what? Rejoice. How can a person obey this command? Rejoice always? Really, Paul? Come on, man. You're talking like all the time. You're talking like from sunup to sundown, Monday through Sunday, 24 7, 365. I'm supposed to rejoice. Is it even possible? Let me ask you this is it even possible for a person to maintain an uninterrupted spirit of gladness? Well, let me help you that. No. It's not. There's not a person in here who has, who has enjoyed an uninterrupted spirit of gladness. But here's what we have to understand tonight. That is not Paul's challenge. Read it again and read it closely. Paul said, rejoice. What are the next three words? In the Lord. Church, get this tonight. This verse is a call not to a feeling, but to vision and a deeply rooted confidence that God does exist, that he is in control, and that he is good. Let me say it again, this this is a call not to a feeling. You got to understand that tonight. We talk about rejoicing. We're not, woohoo, yeah, woo. That's not what we're talking about. It's a call not to a feeling, but to a decision and a deeply rooted confidence that God does exist, that He is in control, and that He is good. In Paul's heart, the winds of adversity could huff. And they could puff and they could threaten to blow the, the tent of his faith down. But he knew in his heart that it would never collapse because he had stabilized it with a sturdy belief in the sovereignty of God. You see, every one of us has a series of beliefs that serve as the poles that stabilize our lives your belief system my belief system is our answer to the fundamental questions of life questions like this is anyone in control of this universe does life have purpose do I have value Is this life all there is? Why do bad things happen to good people? Your belief system will determine how you answer those kinds of questions. What you believe tonight, what I believe tonight, I'm talking about our convictions, are like those tent poles that I told you about in South Dakota. They are what help us weather the storms of life. Go back to that that series of questions. Is anyone in control of the universe? Does life have a purpose? Do I have value? Is is this life all there is? Why why do bad things happen to good people? Depending on on how we answer those questions and depending on our uh, belief system, we will either be able to weather the storms of life or we won't. It's just that simple. If your belief system is strong, then you'll stand. If it's weak, then the storm will will prevail. Belief always precedes behavior. Say it again. Belief always precedes behavior. So if someone wants to change the way they respond to life, then they have to change what they believe about life. Because what you believe is how you're going to respond. Whether or not you believe someone is in control of this universe will dictate how you respond. Depending on what you believe about why good things happen to ba- or why bad things happen to good people, depending on what you believe about that, will, will, will depend on, will determine how you respond to life. So again, if someone wants to change the way they respond to life, they have to change what they believe about life. I believe if we were to take a look at the, the poles in the tent, if you will, of the Apostle Paul's life, that we would see inscribed on one of those poles this phrase, the sovereignty of God. That was certainly one of the, the key values of Paul's belief system was the fact that God is sovereign. And here's what we mean by the word sovereignty. We use it to describe God's perfect control and management of the universe. God's sovereign. He rules perfectly and manages universally. He preserves and governs every element. That means that he is continually involved with all created things, directing them and orchestrating them and manipulating them to act in a way that fulfills his divine purpose. All right, great pastor, but what does that have to do with my my anxiety? And that's a great question. And here's my answer to you tonight. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. Not real chaos, not genuine chaos, but perceived chaos. So if we sense that we are are, are the victims of unseen, turbulent, random forces, then we're going to be anxious people. We're going to be troubled. Now check this out. This was so interesting. Psychologists verified this fact when they studied the impact on combat soldiers in World War II. Anyone who had to endure a constant threat of bomb blitzes, machine gun fire, and enemy snipers like the infantry soldiers did, I mean, anybody that would have to do that is bound to have a high level of anxiety. But here's what's interesting. Contrast that With fighter pilots, their mortality rate was among the highest in combat. Get this, 50% of them were killed in action. That means one out of every two combat fighters who took to the skies on any given day did not return, on average. And it's, but but an astounding ninety three percent of them claimed to be happy in their assignments, even though the odds of survival were not any better than flipping a coin. Now the question is this: What made the difference? Here is what made the difference: Those pilots had their hand on the throttle. They were the ones who sat in the cockpit giving them a sense of control when it came to their fate. Does that make sense? Thus, less anxiety. In their mind, they had their hand on the throttle. They were in the cockpit. They were in control of their own fate. Infantrymen, by contrast, I mean, they could just as easily be killed standing still or running away. I mean, they, they, they had absolutely no control. So the formula is simple. Perceived control creates calm. Now again, the, the, the operative word there is perceived. It's not real. But perceived control creates calm. Lack of control gives birth to fear. If you're taking notes tonight, write this down. Anxiety increases as perceived control diminishes. So what do we do? Control everything? Never board an airplane without taking a parachute? Never... Going to another restaurant without carrying along your own set of clean silverware. Never coming to church again without wearing a bulletproof vest. Never step on a crack lest you break your mother's back. I mean, what do, what do we do? Face anxiety. By taking control, that's what I'll do. I'll take control of my life. I'll take care of my anxiety. I'll take care of my my worry. I'll just take control of my life. (laughs) If only we could. I don't know if you agree with this tonight or not, but that's fine. Some of the most stressed out people are control freaks. Now, if you're a control freak, you would probably agree with that tonight. Some of the most stressed out people also happen to be people who are control freaks. They fail at the quest that they most pursue. The more they try to control the world, the more they realize they can't. Life, so life becomes this vicious cycle of uh, of anxiety, failure. Anxiety, failure. Anxiety, failure. Listen, church, we cannot take control because control is not ours to take. Did you get that? We can't take control. Because control is not ours to take. The the Bible has a better idea. Instead of taking control, relinquish it. We can't run the world. We can't even run the little world we live in. But we can entrust it to God. That's why Paul didn't just say rejoice. He said rejoice in the Lord. In his control, in his wisdom, in his leading, in his sovereignty, rejoice in the sovereignty of the Lord. Listen to me tonight, church. Peace is within reach. Not for lack of problems. That's not what I'm trying to tell you tonight. But because of the presence of a sovereign Lord. And Paul had problems, but yet he was at peace because he had the presence of a sovereign Lord. Let me, let me show you something. Still in the book of Philippians, turn back to chapter 1, would you? Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. When you get there, say amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I would ye should under, excuse me. but I would ye should understand, brethren. That the things, what things? The things that I talked to you about a moment ago. Imprisonment, shipwreck. He was snake bitten at one point. He was beaten three times with 39 stripes. He was beaten with rods. Uh, he was uh, uh, stoned and left for dead. Paul said, all of those things which happened unto me, he said, have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. So what what was Paul doing here? He's not rejoicing in having encountered so many problems. He's not saying, yeah, yeah, three times. Three times they stripped the shirt off my back and and struck me with 39 stripes. Yeah, yeah. And three times they beat me with rods. Now, there was this one time, it was so awesome, they stoned me and they left me outside the city for dead. It was so wonderful. It was. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is, is, is not rejoicing in having encountered so many problems. He's rejoicing in the fact that God, a sovereign God, who's in control of everything, used all of his problems to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul was at peace, not because there weren't any problems, but because he knew that all of this was coming his way because it was part of God's plan. And if it was part of God's plan, then Paul was okay with it. He didn't necessarily have to like it, but he was at peace with it. Are you tracking with me? He goes on to say in verse 14, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, because I was able to weather the storm, my, my preacher brethren have gained much courage. And he said they are preaching the gospel with more boldness now than they ever have before. And so Paul is rejoicing not at his problems, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He's rejoicing in the sovereignty of God, understanding that my faith and my trust is in him, and he knows what's best for me, and I don't have to understand it all, I just have to know that he has my best interest at heart. One more verse, chapter 2, in verse 13. Paul said, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Conditions might have been miserable in the prison, and no doubt they were. But Paul knew that that high above it all, listen, high above it all was a God who worked in him, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. To read Philippians is to read the words of a man who in the innermost part of his being believed in the steady hand of a good God. He was protected by his strength, He was preserved by his love, and he was living beneath the shadow of his wings. Are you? Can I encourage you tonight to stabilize your soul with the sovereignty of God? Do you understand what I mean by the sovereignty of God? He's in control. This world is not just spinning out of control. It's not like God is let loose up and we're just out there flinging around. It's all under control. You say, well, for something that's under control, this, this, this thing is just really whacked out. I, I know from our human perspective, it does. It looks crazy. But God's got it under control, He's sovereign. He reigns supreme over every detail in the universe. Listen to what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. And he, speaking of God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? God's answer for troubled times. Listen to me. It's always been the same. It has never changed. And here's God's answer for troubled times Heaven has an occupied throne. That was the exact answer that God gave Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Be turning there if you have your Bibles back in the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I have to be honest. I've always read Isaiah chapter 6 in the context of missions and surrender and being sent wherever God wants you to go. And I've never, I've never seen what I'm, what I'm going to share with you tonight. During the, the 8th century BC, ancient Judah enjoyed a time of, of relative peace. And, and that was due in large part to the steady leadership of Uzziah. He was the king at that time. He wasn't perfect. No king has ever been perfect. But he was able to keep the enemies of Judah at bay for 52 years. But then he died. Isaiah, who lived during the reign of the king was left with ample reason to worry. He was left with much cause for anxiety. What would happen to Judah now that Uzziah was gone? Or let me try and make some application possibly to your life tonight, what will happen now that I don't have a job? What's going to happen now that I'm sick? What's going to happen now that my family is sick and I'm too far away to help? What's going to happen now that North Korea has demonstrated that that it has the ability to launch a missile that can reach any target in the United States? What's going to happen now that my loved one's gone? Does God have a message for my calamity? Is there a message for me in Isaiah chapter 6? And the answer tonight is yes. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up and his train filled the temple above it stood the seraphims each one had six wings with twain he covered his face and with twain or two he covered his feet and with twain he did fly and one cried unto another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory listen to me tonight Uzziah dies and and Isaiah is wondering what in the world is is going to happen to us now that, that our leader's gone the king's gone listen to me Uzziah Uzziah's throne was empty, but God showed Isaiah something. His throne was occupied. Uzziah's reign had ended, but God's had not. Uzziah's voice was silent, but God's was strong. Go on and read chapter 6. God's voice was strong, and it was powerful, and it was thunderous. Listen, church, God was and is alive on the throne and worthy of endless worship. Our God is alive. And God's answer to a crazy world has always been the same, an occupied throne in heaven. God is not on vacation. God is not taking a break. God is not asleep at the wheel. Rejoice, Paul said, in the Lord, in his what? In his sovereignty, in his control. God calmed the fears of Isaiah not by removing the problems, but by revealing his divine power and presence. Think of it this way. Suppose suppose your dad is the world's foremost orthopedic surgeon. I mean, people travel from far and wide for him to to treat them. On a daily basis, he exchanges damaged hips and knees and shoulders for healthy ones with the same confidence that a mechanic changes spark plugs. At 10 years old, you're a bit young to really comprehend the accomplishments of a renowned surgeon. But you're not too young to trip and fall down the stairs and twist your ankle. And at the worst possible time, you're just a week or so away from from the start of, of basketball. You don't have time for crutches. You don't have time to be limping around. You need a healthy ankle. And yours is anything but. Then into the room walks your dad. He's still wearing his his surgical scrubs. And he bends down and he pulls your shoe off and he peels back your sock and takes a look at your ankle. And there you are, groaning in pain, staring down at this tennis ball size bump. Tennis ball size bump. And all of a sudden, your adolescent anxiety kicks in. Dad, I'll never walk again. (laughs) Yes, you will. No one can help me. I can. No one knows what to do. I do. No, you don't. (laughs) At that point, your dad lifts up his head and he asks you a simple question. Do you know what I do for a living? Well, actually, you don't. You know he goes to work every day at the hospital. You know that people call him a doctor. You know mom thinks he's smart. But you really don't know what your father does. So, he says, as he places a bag of ice on your ankle, it's time for you to learn. And so, the next day, he's waiting for you. At school, in the parking lot, he tells you to get in. And so as you're driving, you ask him where you're going. He says, we're going to the hospital where I work. And so as you step into his office, you see the the constellation of diplomas on his wall. Adjacent to them is a collection of awards that include words like distinguished and honorable. And then he reaches over on the shelf, and he pulls down a journal. It's a manual of orthopedic surgery, and it's got his name on it. And so you ask him, Dad, did you write this? Yeah, I wrote that. About that time, his cell phone rings. When he gets finished with the call, he announces, we're off to surgery. So you scrub up and you follow him into the operating room on your crutches. And during the next few minutes, you have a ringside seat for a procedure in which he literally reconstructs an ankle. I mean, he's like the commandant of the operating room. He never hesitates. He never seeks advice. He just does it. And at one point, one of the nurses bends down and whispers in your ear, Your dad's the best. As the two of you ride home that evening, you look at your dad. But this time, you see him in a different light. you think to yourself, if he can conduct orthopedic surgery then he can likely treat a swollen ankle. And so you ask, Dad, you think I'll be okay? You think I'll be able to start the season? And he looks at you and says, absolutely. And that moment, that moment your anxiety decreases. Why? Because this time you believe him. You' listen, your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your father increases. Does that make sense? You've got a whole better a lot better understanding now of what your dad does and what he can do and you've seen him do it. And so all of a sudden, your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your Father increases. Church, the next time you fear the future, rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. Rejoice in what He's accomplished. Rejoice that He is able to do what you cannot do. Fill your mind with thoughts of God. The mind cannot at the same time be full of God and full of fear. Listen to this, these words from Isaiah. I love it. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. Are you troubled tonight? Restless? Sleepless? Anxious? Can I encourage you tonight to rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty? Whatever your situation is, God's not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands, sweating at his brow, trying to figure out what he's going to do. Listen, God's got it. Whatever's creating this anxiety in your life did not catch God by surprise. It's not like God said, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. No, 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 no. God's got this. God's in control. And if you want your anxiety to decrease, then your knowledge of your father must increase. And how's your knowledge of the father going to increase? Just like your knowledge of Abraham Lincoln or John Kennedy or Ronald Reagan is going to increase. You're going to read about him. And you're going to study about him. How's your knowledge of God going to increase? You're going to get in this book. And you're going to read about the things he's done in the past. And you're going to read about how mighty he is and how strong he is and how wise he is. And as your knowledge of your father increases, your level of anxiety will decrease. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I hope that makes sense tonight. Rejoice.